The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Ephesians chapter, or not Ephesians, sorry. Had something else on my mind. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. I got to be honest with you. Um, I'm, I'm feeling distracted this morning. Uh, I'm feeling not only distracted, I'm feeling some of the weight of some spiritual warfare. Uh, I shared with some of my deacons this morning that um, uh, I just have, have sensed this morning an awareness that, um, that uh, I've, I've been overwhelmed this week, and uh, perhaps I have not spent the time in prayer that I needed to this week. And so I confess that to you as your pastor and, and ask you over the course of this sermon to pray, to pray that God would speak, because we need to hear desperately God speak to us. Amen. Not what I have prepared or, or, or the confidence that I have in my own ability, but indeed we need to hear from, from the Lord this morning. So from Matthew 25, as you're turning there this morning, just as by way of illustration to, to set sort of the context of this, I, I love the Andy Griffith Show. Um, and there's no, no secret here. Uh, those of you who've been around for any time, you know I love the Andy Griffith Show. And I have about a million favorite episodes in fact, all the black and white episodes are my favorite episode. Uh, when they went to color, I was just done with it. Didn't want to see anything else, you know, once, once Barney was gone and all that. But um, there was one particular episode where Opie found a wallet. Remember that episode? He finds the wallet, and inside this wallet is $50. Now, in that day, to a kid his age, $50 was a fortune. He believed he was rich. So when he finds this alone on the side of the road, he opens it up, $50 inside. He runs as fast as he, his, his little legs will carry him all the way back to Paul, right? He goes back to the courthouse, runs in. You can just picture those blue jeans with those Converse tennis shoes and that little T-shirt flying, red hair. You couldn't tell it's red, but you can tell he comes flying in the courthouse. And Paul, Paul, and Barney's there, and he shows the wallet. And he is absolutely beside himself. And Andy and Barney are beside themselves because inside the wallet there is no identification. They don't know who this belongs to either. They have no way to notify the rightful owner of this wallet that Opie has found it. And so Opie's asking, can I keep it? Can I keep it? And before long, Barney chimes in and says, that's right, can he keep it? Can he keep it? And, uh, and they come up with a plan that they will give a week for the owner to come and claim the wallet. If at that particular time, be it 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I can't remember at this time, if the owner did not show up to claim the wallet, at that point, one week, seven days from that point, the wallet and its contents would belong to Opie. So all week long, Opie's dreaming, and Barney's feeding the dreams. And he's, what are you going to get? What are you going to get, Opie? What are you going to buy? And he starts dreaming about all the things. And he, he talks about this fiberglass fishing rod and, and this and that. And he just dreams and dreams and dreams. And his, and his father, Andy, buys him a piggy bank toward the end of the week and says, I want to teach you about saving. And he says, if this winds up being yours, you're to put some of it in here and you're to have some to spend and this sort of thing. Well, lo and behold, the week goes by. Three o'clock comes. Seven days later, the owner has not shown up. And they are in the courthouse watching the clock, the three of them, Andy, Barney, and Opie. And when it strikes 3 o'clock, they take the money from the wallet, they hand it to Opie, he puts some in the piggy bank, and he takes off to the store to spend his money. Well, as Opie leaves, Barney sits down, and he's proud, and he's happy for Opie, and he opens the newspaper. 
And when he opens the newspaper, he sees an ad from Mount Pilate from a Mr. So-and-so who lost a wallet with $50 in it. And he'd been looking for it for a week. Well, Andy is beside himself. Barney is beside himself. They, they don't know whether they should tell Opie or not. They can't break his heart at this point. Andy decides he'll just, he'll just pay the man the $50 and let Opie keep it. This would have been a huge sum. Well, Opie comes back in, and the man happens to be there, but Andy and Barney are not. And Opie runs into the man, and, he's, and the man somehow spills the beans that it was his wallet and that he had lost it, and Opie doesn't say a word. Andy assumes that Opie didn't say a word because he didn't want to give the money back. He goes back home. Andy comes in, finds out. He goes looking for Opie, and he goes to his bedroom, and he finds the piggy bank broken open and all the money gone. He assumes that in his fear of being found out that Opie has gone on a shopping spree. But instead, what Opie had done is he knew what the right thing to do was. He had gathered all the money. He had taken back the fiberglass fishing rod, gotten the money back, and he had collected it all to bring to his paw to say, the money isn't mine, it belongs to Mr. So-and-so. They don't make TV like that anymore, do they? That's good stuff. Well, here's the scenario I would present you with. Imagine you're walking through the parking lot outside of Walmart or outside the mall, and you're walking through the parking lot, and you find some money. You find a wallet that has been dropped, and inside that wallet is some money. What do you do? Do you pick the wallet up and look around to see if anyone saw and then stick it in your pocket? Or do you go back into the store and and you tell the customer service that you found some money, you don't disclose to them how much, and you leave your phone number to say, if someone comes looking, have them call me? What do you do? Does it make a difference how much money's in the wallet? If it's $5, do you quickly turn it back in? But if it's $5,000, do you say, I could really use $5,000? What if... What if you really, really, really need the money badly? What if you're not the one who finds the money, but you're the one who lost the money? See, the reality is that this money that you have found in the parking lot at the end of the day is not yours. It belongs to someone else, and you should not keep it. You should do everything within your power to find the rightful owner, and if possible, to return the money. And we live in a day and age where morality is confused but we all deep down know that's the right thing to do. We're faced, I would, I would pose to you, every single day of our lives with this scenario, not in, in the hypothetical, but in the actual. Every single day of our lives, you and I walk through the parking lot of our lives, and we find money in the parking lot. We find money and resources that are just part of our lives, and we understand that it's not ours to keep. You say, what are you talking about, Pastor? I'm talking about the money and the, and the resources that come into your life. They're not yours. You say, Pastor, but I, I work hard for what I have. I, I've earned that. And I would say to you that the Bible teaches that while you do work hard, and I'm thankful for hard work, and I, and I would encourage you to continue to work hard and to take pride in your work, the Bible teaches that our work and our toil and our effort is nothing more than walking through a parking lot and finding money there. Because the Bible teaches that God owns everything. That everything that you and I have that comes into our lives 
that he allows to come into our hands. And at the end of the day, it is not ours to do with what we want. It is not our, it is not our prerogative to say, I really, really, really want the fiberglass fishing rod. It is God's money. And in our passage today, we will learn how we should view this money that we find in the parking lot of our lives and how we should, how we should handle it. If you will, follow along with me as I read verses uh, 14 through 30 of Matthew 25. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away, and he who had received the five talents went at once and traded, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had, made ta- who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want to walk through this passage today. I want to do so depending on the Spirit of God to enlighten us, to teach us what is here of these principles of finding the money in the parking lot of our lives. It is not ours, but it is God's. So would you pray with me and let's ask God to show us the truths that are here. Lord Jesus, we love you. God, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I pray now that you would come and you would be our teacher. God, that you would uh, would teach me to trust you, that I would lean on you. God, that you would show us what is here, and God, that you would change us. Lord, would you wake us to following you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've set my notes aside this morning because I want to just let the text speak. The first verse that we look at this morning shows us that God owns everything and that we are merely his managers. Verse 14, it says here, Jesus is telling this parable. And the context of Jesus telling this parable, if you go back to chapter 24 and you look at verse 3 and and forward, the disciples are asking Jesus about the end. When will the end come? 
And Jesus doesn't tell them when it will come, but instead he launches into three parables to teach them about what the, the, the follower of Christ, what the disciple should be doing until that time. What should we be found practicing as followers of Christ? And that's the context. In verse 14, the, the Bible here tells us that Jesus said it will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, there's a, a word in there that I want to point your attention to, that he entrusted to them his property. And this is a parable. It's not, we're not meant to press every single detail. We're supposed to get this, this main point, the main teaching of this. But here, there is a difference in entrusting property and giving property. Here the story is this, this wealthy landowner who has these servants, he entrusts some property to them. He doesn't give it, give it to them, he entrusts it to them, which implies that he expects them to manage these resources for them, for him, that one day he will return and he will draw the accounts to, to, be, uh, to be accounted for. And the, verse 15 says that, that, uh, that, that we are, well, verse 14 t- teaches that, that just like the story here, that you and I are the servants and that the master, it is up to him to give, to entrust what he wills. That it is not up to us to say, this is what I want or this is what I should have. But instead, the master, God the Father, places into our hands whatever we have. There is not anything that you have that is not from him. That he has placed it into your hands and you are to be his manager. Now look at what takes place. Verse 15. It says, To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Now you and I, we don't understand this. We hear the word talent and because of the way we understand it in the English language, we think that this is some sort of ability. And that's not what's in view here. The word talent, it was a word used in, in biblical times in ancient Palestine in, in the Old Testament. It was, it was a reference to a weight, probably around 75 pounds. In the New Testament, a talent became known as a monetary value, and it was a lot of money. A talent would have been the equivalent of somewhere like 20 years' wages for the average worker. If you do the math and you were to extrapolate that to today... And the average worker in our culture today would make somewhere around $150 a day. You time, multiply that times five days a week, times 52 weeks a year, and, and that's going to come out to somewhere around, times 20 years, that's $780,000 or so. That's a talent. This is a lot of money. The one talent man is given the equivalent of this $780,000, which means the two talent man was given the equivalent of over $1.5 million dollars. And the five-talent man was given the equivalent of $3.9 million. This is not chump change. This here is is this wealthy landowner leaving to his servants lots of money and lots of wealth, and he's entrusting them to manage it on his behalf. Verse 15 says that he leaves it to them according to their ability. I would, I would submit to you that in this room there are people who are one-talent people and two-talent people and five-talent people. And you're probably very aware of this. You probably say something like, well, why don't I have what they have? I wish I had as much as they have. They seem to always get all the breaks, and I don't ever seem to get anything. But I would submit to you that God knows exactly what you and I need. And here, Jesus, a small detail in the parable says that he gave, he entrusted to each one of them according to their own ability. 
It's not up to us to say, God, you should have this. We need to trust God. We need to understand that God is wise in all that he does and that he knows exactly what we need and what we cannot handle. You, you may say, well, I'd, I'd love to have the five talents. God, anytime you feel like giving me $3.9 million, Lord, I am willing. But the reality is God knows that for some of us, if he were to place that type of money into our possession, that we couldn't handle it. That there would be a reality show made about our lives. That we would be like these lottery winners that go off the deep end and all of a sudden they're broke before the year's out. God knows what we can handle. And God is wise in all of it. Verse 15 says that the landowner then goes away after entrusting this to them. And verse 16 reveals that those who were given the talents immediately got to work. The man who'd been given five talents, he went out and he began to trade with it. He probably started some sort of a business and he made five talents more. We're not told how much time goes by, but we're told here that he got to work and that he made five more talents. And so also the one who had two talents, verse 17, made two talents more. But the one who had one talent, he was afraid. And he goes out and he buries the the talent in the ground. You say, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Why would someone take the equivalent of $780,000 and just bury it in the ground somewhere? You and I don't do that. If you do, I'd like to come over to your house for a barbecue. And I'll just bring my shovel and you be distracted and I'll just dig up your yard, right? But in these days, this, this was in the days before banking was really taking off. It wasn't regulated. There was, there was some banking, but largely it was private owners. And so a lot, a lot of people didn't trust bankers. And so what they would do is they would go out into a field and they would bury resources, bury money there, mark the, mark the place where it was buried, and it would be safely kept there. Hence the story of the man who's walking across a field one day and finds the treasure hidden in a field. Probably what happened there is this wealthy landowner buries this this money in the field and then suddenly dies, and no one knows where this is until this guy comes through and, and finds it buried in the field. This is a common practice. And so this one talent man here in verse 18 buries his master's money in the ground. Verse 19 says that after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. That that after some time, we don't know exactly how long, the master comes back and says, "It, it is time for us to settle the accounts. Here's what I would say to you, is that you and I don't know, don't know when he's coming back. You and I, it's not up to us to be able to say, God, you should have done this because God knows. But I would say to you that one day Jesus is going to come back. That I have no idea how much money will pass through your hands or mine. That, that one day, I don't, know, I don't have any idea how many resources will come through my grasp, but one day I will give an account for how I have indeed handled what has come through my hands. And here in verse 19, it says that after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And look at verse 20. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. This is a good moment. It's a good moment for this this servant there's, there's no fear or trepidation in this moment. When this master returns and he's made five more and he comes before his master and he says, look, you gave me five, I brought you five more, here's ten. He feels pretty good about himself. Look at the response. 
Verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful, faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And then all of a sudden, the man who had two talents comes forward. And he should feel pretty good too. He, he brings forward his two, and he's got two more. And this is a good moment for him. And, and he, he stands before the master and he says, I, I've got two more for you. And his master said to him in verse 23, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, what do you notice about verses 21 and 23? They're identical. It's, it's the same commendation. Sometimes you and I get caught up in the fact that somebody else has more than we have, and therefore they have the ability to do more for the kingdom, and therefore they will perhaps be held more accountable than you and I. The reality is, just like in in verse 15 forward, that it's not up to us. We don't have the prerogative to say to God, God, you should have given me this, or you should have not given me this. God knows what he's doing that verses 21 and 23 teach us that it is not about the amount that we've been given. It is about what we do with God, what God places into our hands. That God says whether, whether, it's a, whether you're a five-talent person or a two-talent person or a one-talent person, I'm going to hold you accountable to what I have placed into your hands. And so, the, so to the five-talent man who has earned five more and presents it back to his master, he hears the well-done good and faithful servant. To the two-talent man who only brings two talents back, he hears, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't hear, man, this five-talent guy is awesome. Two-talent guy, you're pretty good too, but five-talent guy, you're awesome. That's not what he hears, and that's the way that we would write this story. But God here, Jesus is teaching that God expects us to give an account for how we handle what he places into our care. It's not about how much he gives. It's about what we do with it. He gives the same commendation. He gives the same well done to both of these men. I would submit to you, or I would just challenge you, that instead of us living in a day and age where we live more for the attaboys of this world, that we might live for the well done, good and faithful servant of the world to come. That you and I might see that, that what is in our hands here is, has been given to us by the Master, and it is our responsibility to manage and to handle it for His glory and not for our own. Well, look at verse 24. Verse 24, he comes to... Well, before I do that, let me just look at, at verses 21 and 23 again. They hear here from the Master, well done, good and faithful servant. And then they hear this. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Perhaps the, in this moment, the two-talent man could have said, yeah, mine was a little, but five-talent guy, yours was not so little. Yours was a lot. You had $3.9 million. All I had was $1.5. Notice that God says to both of them, I've set you over a little. You say, well, in, in my checking account, $3.9 million, not a little. I don't know about any of you in this room, but that's not a little. In God's economy, that's a little. We sit in a room right here. We sit in this building. Uh, 
contacted, I did some research on this, some homework on us. You know that this building alone that we sit in on our campus is insured for right around $3 million? That's not including the contents in this place. That's not including the gym down the way. That's not including the ball fields or the offices or the log cabin or the garage. You think, man, this is just this one building right at $3 million. We've had one fire here. We don't, we're not looking to have another one. That's not why I'm sharing this with you. What I'm sharing this, the reason I am, is because I want you to see that one little church right here sits in a building insured for $3 million. You think about all the buildings that make up Spartanburg County and Greenville County. You think about all the buildings that make up the state of South Carolina. You think about all the homes and, and the high-rises and all those things that make up all of the states within this union. You think about all of the countries that make up this world and all that is there. And you know that, that Psalm 24.1 and Psalm 50, I think 12 and 13, talk about that, that the earth is his and the fullness thereof. That he owns everything, that all the beasts of the field are his, that the cattle on a thousand hills are his. Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a, a theologian, a, a pastor in the Netherlands, said once that, that there is not a square inch anywhere on the planet where God's fingerprints are not there and where he doesn't say, mine. You may think that what you have is little, but when you compare it to what God owns, and God owns everything, it's all little. The wealthiest person on the planet is a pauper in the presence of God. And God says to him here, I've set you over a little. You, I, I'll put you over much because of how you've handled this. The principle here is that when we manage well for the glory of God, not, not hoarding things to ourselves, but instead saying what God places into my care, I will manage in such a way that I will hold it loosely so that he might be made much of, God says it's then that you are showing that you can be trusted with more. And hence you think that this is a theology of works. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm not talking about justification here. But what I am showing you here is that in following Christ, God is equipping us and God is saying, when you handle what I place into your hands well, there is a principle here that he entrusts with more. Again, it's not our prerogative to say to him, now's the time, God, give me more. He alone elevates. He alone distributes but here's a principle from his own mouth in this parable that when we manage well for his glory and not our own gain, that he will set us over more. And then this final little phrase there in verses 21 and 23 in the response of the master, he says, you've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. And then he says, enter into the joy of your master. This is a wonderful little phrase here. Remember, the context of this is the disciples have asked about the end time. When is the final day coming? And so this is the context, and Jesus is telling them here that all of this has to do with the end. Even this little story about a man going away and entrusting all this money to his servants. And Jesus' point is that there will come a day when you and I will give an account, and, and we will show whether we belong in the joy of our Lord or not based on how we handle the resources God places into our care now. What I'm not saying to you is I'm not saying that you and I, if we'll just manage our money well, that we will find ourselves in heaven, that we can tithe our way into heaven. That's not at all what's being said here. 
What Jesus is pointing to is the fact that you and I, if we have been saved, we reveal hearts that are generous, hearts that are glad, hearts that hold on to this world's goods with, 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 uh, with, with a loose grip because it points to the fact that we have indeed been saved. And vice versa, we'll see in just a second with the response here uh, to this, this one talent servant. Verse 24, he says, <coughs> sorry about that. He also who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what's yours. And I think in this moment, this one talent man has watched what has gone down. And he's watched the five talent man. And he's watched the two talent man come before the, the master. And, and he's seen, hey, this thing's gone pretty well. And surely, in his mind, probably he's thinking, well, he surely won't hold me to the same standard. I mean, they doubled everything. Surely he won't hold me. He just gave me one talent. Surely he won't hold me to the same standard, and perhaps this will go well. And I think in this moment, he steps forward to the master, and he has this bravado and this sense of confidence, and he says, look, you gave me one. Look, hey, shiny still. I've, I've brushed the dust off of it. No more dirt. It's all polished up. Here's your talent. In this moment, we could be tempted to think the same thing. That you and I could think that somehow following God was just protecting what He gave to us. Just not letting anything happen to it. Just keeping it safe. Just hiding it away in the ground. Just so that we can just present what He gave to us and trust it to us back to Him one day. There's a lesson here in this parable for all of us. As a church, there's a lesson for us here. One day, God is not going to say, do you still have what I gave you? Not while there are nations out there who don't know his name. There are people right now who are, who are carving idols out of wood and stone, who are praying to ancestors, who are groping in darkness because they don't know the hope of the gospel. In a day like that, this is, it is not okay for us to say, God, we've buried it away, but look, we've got it all. I think what God is calling us to here, what he's, what he's illustrating again in this parable, is that what he places into our hands as individuals and what he places into our hands as a church, that we are to take risks for the kingdom of God. I mean, the, the excuse that he gives here is, look, I knew you to be a hard man. I knew you to reap where you hadn't sowed, gather where you haven't scattered seed. I didn't want to lose what you gave me, so I just held on to it. Churches get in trouble when they get in this mindset of, we just want to hold on to what we have. I pray that we would never become a church that says, let's just hold on to what we have. But instead, we would be a church that says, let's be wise, yes, but let's risk. Let's go where the name of Christ has not been named. Whether that's halfway around the world or whether that's across the county. Let's go and let's risk for the sake of his great name. Verse 24, um, let me just finish what he says here. Um, gives this excuse, and, and in, in giving this excuse, he's going to reveal that he doesn't know the master at all. Verse 25, he said, I was afraid. I went and hid your town in the ground, and here you have what's yours. But look at the response of the master. 
His master answered him and said, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Now, if we read this the wrong way without the right punctuation, we can hear this as though the master is agreeing with this wicked servant and claiming that he is hard and he gathers where he hasn't scattered. But I want you to notice the little question mark at the end of verse 26. The master here is not agreeing with the servant. The master is being sarcastic. He's saying, you think you know me so well? And that's why he can call him wicked. And that's why he can call him slothful. You say, well, isn't wicked a little harsh to call this, this guy wicked? I mean, at least he didn't go blow it on himself. No, it's wicked because he says things about the master that aren't true of the master. When you and I say things about the character of God that do not line up with the character of God, we adopt the same tactics of the devil. In Genesis 3, isn't that what Satan said or the serpent said to Adam and Eve? Didn't he there say, look, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you'll be like him. And in so doing, the serpent is implying the shadiness to God. That there's something in the character of God that is withholding something good. And when you and I malign and say things about our God that aren't true of His character, we act just like the devil and we are indeed wicked. He calls Him slothful because He just points to, He, he uses His sarcasm here and He, and he and he's just points out the hypocrisy here. You said you thought I was hard. I gather where I haven't scattered. And if that was so, that should be all the more reason for you to go out and invest my money. There's a sure investment out there. Take it to the bank, and at least I get interest off this thing. If I'm really who you say that I am, it should motivate you to action, not lull you into slumber. And he, he calls him here this, this sluggard. He's slothful, it says. You knew that I reap where I haven't sown. I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with, with interest. And look at what happens here. He doesn't say, well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say, you've been entrusted with a little. I will set you over more. He doesn't say, enter into the joy of your master. Look instead what happens. Verse 27. Verse 28, I'm sorry. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. You and I have a choice every single day because every single day you and I walk through the parking lot of our lives and we find resources there that aren't ours. They belong to God. God owns everything. And you and I have a choice in that moment to say, God, I will either use this for your own glory or I will use this for myself. And for the person who says, I'm going to hoard this to myself, even what they have will be taken away. And I would argue that, that the passage we looked at last week in Matthew 6, that it, God has the potential and sometimes will take it away while you're here on earth. That rust will, will eat it away, that the moth will, will come in, that thieves will steal it, and God will take it away from you while you're on earth. Sometimes, though, it seems that the wicked, the, the, those that don't honor God with their wealth, seem to be getting away with it and only getting more wealthy. Well, mark it down, they are not getting away with it. There will come a day when they will give an account for how they use the resources God has placed into their hands. 
in rejecting Christ and rejecting the giver, they will find themselves on the outs. Give verse 29. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he, who has, he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is set in direct opposition to enter into the joy of your master. Instead, here it's depart into outer darkness. And remember the context here, explaining the end times. And Jesus here is telling this parable to his disciples so that while they are waiting for the end to come, that they might, even with something like money, it seems so insignificant that they might manage it in a way that reflects who they really are. That they might show that they are indeed servants of the Master. That those who hoard it for themselves, that those who don't care anything about the world to come or for His glory, instead, they will show that they do not belong to the Master at all and they will be cast away from Him. What this is pointing to here, and I would be, again, derelict if I did not point this out to you, is that while we are not saved by works... The Bible says that if we are saved, our lives will be marked by works. That the way that we manage our money, the way that we manage the resources that we find in the parking lot of our lives, that He has placed there, reveal whether we are His or not. Ephesians 2, He has prepared for us works ahead of time. And I would implore you today, as I simply come to this passage, I threw my notes away, but I would implore you today, You and I, every single one of us, are entrusted with the goods of the master. Every single one of us have been entrusted by a master who is wise, who knows what he's doing. It is not our prerogative to complain against him or to wish for more or to begrudge him. Instead, it is to do with what he has given us what is best for his glory. And one day when he returns, he will call us to account The accounts will be settled. And this is, again, I can't stress this enough. This is not a sermon preaching justification by works. But there will come a day when the Bible teaches that that we will stand before, even as believers, we will stand before a judgment seat. And there we will reveal whether we are His or we are not. Some works are conspicuous. Others are hidden away. I would implore you to manage the master's money well. What will you do with what you find in the parking lot of your lives? Will he find you hoarding it away? Or will you spend it and risk it for his glory? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your spirit. Lord, I pray, God, that you would take what has been said today. And, Lord, while it was not as clean as maybe it would have been if I would have stayed to my notes, God, I feel I just simply want, Lord, your word to speak. That you right now, Spirit of God, would speak through your word clearly. God, that you might set your people free, myself included, from the bondage of the things that come along with money and possessions. 
Lord, that you might set us free from, from the cares of this world. Lord, that you might set us free from, from the comforts and the attaboys. And God, that we might live our lives for the well-done, good, and faithful servant. That we might live our lives to be trusted and entrusted with more for you. Lord, that one day that you might reveal yourself and that we might settle accounts and that our lives would have been poured out showing that we belong to you. Not of our own doing. Completely and solely of your own. God, would you show it. Lord, would you, would you take this, this scripture passage, Lord, would you bring it home to your people? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect and respond on what's been said. I know it's been different. Never take my notes and check them away. But I pray that the Spirit of God has spoken through His Word. If He's called you to something in particular, would you just say yes today? Perhaps it's to repent of a way that you have handled what He's placed into your hands. Today, to turn away from it, to make a public declaration that I'm through hoarding it for myself. It's not mine, it's his. Maybe you need to come and, and make that public. Maybe you need to come and just pray or pray where you are and say, God, would you give me the strength? Lord, this has a, a power over my life that I think is stronger than what I'm able to, to walk away from. Lord, would you grant me repentance? Whatever it is that God is calling you to today, I pray that you would respond in obedience. I'll be here on the front row. I'd love to speak with you. I'd love to pray with you. Whatever he has, would you say yes? Let's worship him as we respond to his word. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.